0: Before we jump into the Word uh, this morning, I wanna take the opportunity to remind you or put on your radar some things that are uh, coming up for our church, opportunities to connect in a church our size. It's really important that um, we get together in smaller groups and different venues to build those relationships with each other. So here are a few opportunities coming. Um, Most of these, you can get the information on our website. LebanonChristian.org, go to the events tab. Um, There are several opportunities this summer coming up for you to connect with other people. In fact, uh, some in our family ministries have planned what they are calling connect for events. They're great for families, uh, kids of all ages, but they're also great for others just to come and to mingle and to interact. But we do need you to register, they're free, um, uh, to let us know that you're gonna be there so we have enough food and things. Uh, The first one is coming up this Wednesday, June 8th, six to 8.30, cookout and yard games. Wednesday, June 22nd, 6 to 8.30, pizza pitching and wiffle ball. July 2nd, Saturday, 6 to 8.30, chalk talk and kickball. Um, and then Friday, July 22nd, there's a summer splash pool party that's open to everybody over here at our, our big uh, pool at Memorial Park. So those are opportunities to connect. Beyond that, uh, June 26th, we're doing something special in this space at 6 p.m., it'll run about six to eight. Uh, we're, we're gonna start a series of new things called Heart Cry opportunity to come together to sing, to pray, and to hear stories of how God has worked in people's lives. And the first one we're calling HeartCry, Hymns, and Prayer. And so it'll be a time you can come together, multi-intergenerational, and we'll sing some hymns together, some of the cherished things from the past, break it up with prayer and hearing stories. And then after that, we'll, we'll release to, to have some ice cream and hang out and to connect with each other. And there'll be more of those to come later in the year. And then beyond that, um, if you want to connect through service, we're still recruiting help for specifically Friday and Saturday for our Habitat Build Week. Uh, That's July, uh, sorry, July, June 17th and 18th. We still need people to sign up again. That's on our events tab of our website. You have to be 16 or over to help with that. We'd love for you to join us in, in serving our community and building a home together. Uh, But speaking of Habitat, we do have a group that's leaving uh, today for Bowling Green, Kentucky, a place that was ravaged by some tornadoes and they're gonna be rebuilding and working on some job sites there. And so I just wanna take the opportunity, if you're participating with the Habitat build this week in Bowling Green, if you're traveling and you're able, would you stand up where you are? Uh, I just wanna take the chance to pray uh, over you as you leave to, to serve. God, I thank you for these that have um, willingly taken some time off of work and away from family to uh, journey south um, to people whose lives have been turned upside down in recent months and just need help and they need hope. And God, would you guide and anoint and bless and strengthen their hands, their hearts, their bodies um, as they repair and build um, not just homes, but lives. Uh, God, may the people they serve um, interact in such a way that conversations are had, that they can see that the light that they're bringing ultimately comes from you. Would you guide their travels, and would you guard them? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you. We are continuing uh, our our series in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, but it's going to be a little bit before we get there, and I hope you'll be able to connect the dots. I wanted to start by sharing with you uh, some words from a letter that I found. Uh, several years ago, a man had been falsely accused. He'd been imprisoned uh, for things he, he hadn't done. He didn't deserve the imprisonment. And instead of turning inward and focusing on himself and becoming bitter, which I don't think any of us would have um, been hard on the man for, Uh, he chose to spend his time and his hours um, just writing to people that he cared about. So he would write daily and uh, send letters in the mail to to try to encourage people um, to live life uh, how he was living it. And I I found some of the words to one of those letters and um, I just found them really intriguing and I wanted to share them as we started he wrote to friends and family, and really probably to anyone who would listen. He said, Don't let selfishness and prideful agendas take over. Embrace true humility. Lift your heads and extend love to others. Get beyond yourselves and protecting your own interests. Be sincere and secure your neighbor's interests first. When I found those words and I heard the man's story, I thought, how remarkable. Who, who would have faulted uh, this man for thinking about himself and, and being selfish when he's been falsely accused and falsely imprisoned? And yet, how does he spend that time saying, listen, don't, don't focus on yourself. Be, be humble and, and, and lift your head up. Don't focus on your problems, but lift your head up and, and how about you care about the interests of others, your neighbors, before your own? And I just find that example Compelling, and it causes me to, to go to this thought. What would happen in, in our world if more of us heeded this man's advice? What would happen in our world if more of us chose to live with true humility and didn't think first of our own personal agendas or our selfish agendas, but instead elevated the interests of others above our own? Think about the impact. So think about what might happen in your family. What might happen in your relationship with your children, with your parents, uh, with your spouse? What might happen in your relationship with your ex who you still share parenting of your children with? If we looked out not for our own interests first, but to the interests of others and, and didn't pursue our own personal agendas first. Well, what would happen beyond? What would happen in your friendships? Well, what would happen in your places of work? What would happen in your, on your sports teams, whether it's baseball or softball or a tennis team or maybe you run track or, or whatever it is what would happen if you looked out to others' interests above your own and put aside your personal agenda? What would happen? What would happen if you did that on your commute to work? Stuck in traffic, you had another construction zone around Indianapolis. They will go on for eternity, it seems. Like what if we put others' interests above our own and lifted our eyes to our neighbor, lifted our heads to our neighbor? What what would happen in our church? What would happen in the church, followers of Jesus across our country? What would happen in our country? What would happen if those who govern us chose to not look out for their own interests, but to the interests of others? And even as we consider those things, doesn't it start to kind of birth a life and a hope? Like what if we could live that way? I think we can all imagine the weight of that, the impact of that, the significance of that. If we could raise our eyes to others and not live out of a selfish ambition or place of pride. When I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, a popular phrase that I would hear on talk shows, my mother was a teacher and she you know, worked hard during the school year, had her summers off, and, and oftentimes uh, of a morning, nine ten o'clock, uh, before the Price is Right came on, uh, there would be a talk show. And it may be Montel Williams, it may be uh, Oprah, it might be uh, Dr. Phil, who seems to like never age. It might have been Mari Povich, that was pretty seedy and pretty exciting as a, a juvenile to watch. Um, but inevitably, what was talked about often in those talk shows were dysfunctional families. That was a popular phrase in the 80s and 90s, and it was a phrase used to describe families that weren't functioning optimally. And as a kid, I thought that was pretty crazy. There are actually dysfunctional families, and then I grew up and I realized that all of our families are somewhat dysfunctional. And as I've grown older, I realize it's not just the family that's dysfunctional. Businesses are dysfunctional. Nonprofits are dysfunctional. Um, Communities are dysfunctional. Governments are dysfunctional. Any place where people don't live uh, in a good way towards one another uh, can be dysfunctional. And oftentimes at the heart of that dysfunction are individuals and sometimes groups of people who put their interests, their preferences above the interests and preferences of other people. And whenever that happens, often we find division and hurt and heartbreak, whether it's the family or a government or a church or a community. What if we could read those words of that letter as though they were to us and say, how do I lift my head beyond myself and and come around other people? I'm gonna ask a question. I think I know the answer for some of you. What, What is the answer to the dysfunction that we experience in our world today. I think that if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, if you would consider yourself a disciple or a Christian, you would say, well, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. There's an old song, maybe if you're old enough you remember it, it's Jesus is the answer for the world today, Um, above him there's no other, Jesus is the way, old, old, old song, for me anyway. We would say Jesus is the answer. And usually why that we mean that people need to find um, the saving grace of God. They need to turn their lives over to him and that changes their lives. And, and most certainly we often mean that if we kind of treat other people the way Jesus treated other people, then, then that certainly would help. We, we, we don't see in Jesus uh, his own self-interest and, and putting them above other people. But I would guess that even if you're not a follower of Jesus, even if you don't accept that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, even if you don't believe that Jesus is the savior of the world, that you look and the things that you hear about the historical Jesus, you say, you know what? If we lived more like him, it probably would make the world less dysfunctional. It probably would make the world better. And so I think that's one place we have to remember in a world of controversy and division that we can be united whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, that we look to Jesus and the character of Jesus and we say, you know what? That supplies and and that paints a a, a picture that that gives us a path forward and how we might be able to navigate the dysfunction in our world. What happens when those who claim to follow Jesus and bear his name, people who would say they're Christians, little Christs, little Jesuses, don't quite model the love and the care and the compassion of Jesus. What happens when the people called to be his light in the world are just as dysfunctional, if not more dysfunctional, than the world around? Jesus says the stakes are high. I wanna read you some of his words in John. John chapter 13 Jesus says this to his closest followers. He says, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If you look at this passage in what we would call its context, when Jesus says it, he has just finished washing his disciples' feet. Uh, This is the night he'll share his last supper with his disciples. This is the night when he'll be arrested, betrayed. This is the night when his torture will begin that leads up to his crucifixion on the cross. And he looks to his disciples and says, hey guys, I I have something new for you. Listen up. Why don't you love other people the way I have loved you? And what's the example that's in their mind at this moment? Jesus, who put aside his self-interest who demonstrated true humility and put their interests above his own. And what does he say after that? He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love them. And he goes, listen, the world will take notice if you love like I have loved you. He, he's not saying follow the world's example of love. He's not saying it's only about approval or acceptance. He's saying, no, look at how I have loved. That's my example. John would later write that God is love. Like God gets to define what love is, but love like I have loved You, And when you do that, the world will take notice. When Jesus' followers love like he has loved us, it is a light in the darkness of dysfunction. It is a hope to heartbreak and hurt that's caused by divisive words and people looking out for self above all else. In our me first, gotta get mine society, when people truly love like Jesus loved, it changes things. And the stakes are high. Like, what if the church doesn't? What if the church is characterized more by looking out for themselves, people being selfish, wanting things their way? Uh, What happens then? Well, at the worst, God's impact through us in this moment in time uh, is minimized. God's impact in history won't be minimized. His purposes won't be thwarted. He tells us that in Job. But his impact through us would be and I would say even at the worst, other people's experience of who Jesus is, is hurt and harmed. When I have conversations with people who don't yet follow Jesus, most of those people don't have a problem with God. You know where the hurt and the heartbreak has come from for them? It's people who have boldly said, I'm a follower of Jesus and they treat them like junk. There's a lot of stake. But what happens when those who love Jesus genuinely strive imperfectly but genuinely strive to love others as jesus loved them and put others interests above their own and and live with humility We, we see communities changed we we see children fostered we see hungry fed we see unity in a world of division and it's so powerful And so some of you are sitting here wondering, if you've been on this journey with us, if you're new, I'll hopefully catch you up. Um, You're like, Craig, what is this dysfunction? What is this um, letter from this prisoner? What are these words of Jesus? What on earth do they have to do with Ezra and Nehemiah? I thought we were studying Ezra and Nehemiah, and you would be right. Ezra and Nehemiah wrote these, these, these words describing the comeback story of Israel from exile and While they were written thousands of years ago, they speak with relevance today. And what we find in the words of Ezra and Nehemiah in this incredible comeback story are some strong words from Nehemiah to a people whose dysfunction threatened to derail the impact that God wanted to have through them. And we can look at that dysfunction and learn lessons for us today that are even championed in the New Testament for how we can live and love one another. And so while our circumstances are so different, none of us would say that we're exiles from Persia. None of us would say that we have been captives in an ancient land, but yet we also uh, probably understand what it means and what it looks like to be hurt by people who probably shouldn't be hurting us, by people who should be loving us and encouraging us and helping us. If you have your Bibles, I want you to find Nehemiah chapter five. And hopefully, the dots will start to connect. So last week, we looked at Nehemiah 4 and some in Nehemiah 6, and we saw that as this build, big project, this um, work that God wants to do through these exiles of rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, as it continues on, they faced opposition. They faced opposition from people outside of their community of faith. People didn't share the same beliefs about God that, that they did. Um, we named them last week, Sambalot, Tobiah, Geshem, and, and, and others, and how people who didn't love God, who didn't worship God, who didn't trust and follow God, wanted the work to stop, but something happens in chapter 5, we realize that the enemy's not outside the people of God, it's, it's inside. Look at the first five verses of Nehemiah 5. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews some were saying we and our sons and daughters are numerous in order for us to eat and stay alive we must get grain others were saying we are mortgaging our fields our vineyards and our homes to get grain during the famine still others were saying we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews and though our children are as good as theirs yet we have we we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So so here's the setup. Men and women, husbands and wives, raise up this loud outcry to try to get Nehemiah's attention. Now we sometimes think of outcry as trying to raise awareness or just get attention on something, but this word outcry is even deeper than that. It means it's a great cry for help. It is a cry of distress, So so here are these men and women who are raising this cry of desperation for help, and who's it against? Their fellow Jews. So we have Jews, worshipers of God, crying out for help because their fellow worshipers of God are hurting them and harming them. There's mistreatment within the community of faith. What are some examples of the mistreatment? Well, verse two tells us, we, are sons and our daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. There were some big families uh, and they were hungry. We learn in verse three that there was a famine. There was a shortage. And the very nature of supply and demand, which was in effect way back in, in uh, 400 BC, same thing applies today. When supplies are limited, costs go up. I think we know a little bit about that right now, don't we? And so grain prices are high, families are big, and they're like, we can't get enough others kinda add to uh, what's happening. They say, listen, we're mortgaging our fields. We're mortgaging our vineyards. We're having to sell off and become indebted to our fellow Jews just to buy grain. And so really they're mortgaging their future. Maybe their fields, maybe their vineyards weren't yielding crops during the famine. They would in the future, but just to survive, even to see the future, they had to sell them off. But it gets worse than that. They had the burden of taxation. And so some of them were selling off their fields and vineyards just to pay their taxes, let alone buy grain. And some of them, once their fields and once their vineyards, once all that was gone, guess what they were left with? Selling off their children into slavery to their fellow Israelites. And so you have this community of faith who's returned from exile. They're to be worshiping God, pursuing his purposes, God doing great things through them. And not only are they facing opposition from the outside, but now they're taking advantage of each other. They're putting their interests above the others. They're making their selfish gains the goal and they hurt each other in the process. And look at Nehemiah's reaction, verse six. When I heard their outcry, when I heard their cry for help, And these charges, I was very angry. He is infuriated. But what I love about Nehemiah, he is a man who just walks with such grace. And it says he pondered them in his mind. Maybe your Bible says he sought counsel with himself. He got away not to act rashly, not to act out of rage, but to say, what am I gonna do about this? And I would guess, the text doesn't tell us this, but I would guess that Nehemiah probably prayed because the pattern we see previously in Nehemiah's life Regardless, Nehemiah gets away, he thinks about these things and then he comes back. It says, he then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest, which by the way, was against the law of Moses, Leviticus, I believe it's chapter 23, so that you could lend to your neighbor, but you could not charge him interest. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. Like, this is ridiculous, Nehemiah says. And they kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. They know they're guilty as charged. So he continues, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? He says, listen, shouldn't you live in response to the greatness of God, out of awe for God, out of fear of God? Shouldn't that be your motivation? And shouldn't that keep you from doing what you're doing? And if that's not enough, what about the reproach of the Gentiles? What about our reputation with people who don't yet know Jesus? Shouldn't we live out of respect for who God is so it has a positive influence on the people around us? He says, I and my brothers and my men, were are also lending the people money and grain. The difference is they weren't charging interest. He says, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses and also the interest you're charging them, 1% of the money, the grain, the new wine, and the olive oil. Nehemiah says, listen, what we're doing, how we're treating each other is not right. We're not intended to be this dysfunctional. We are the people of God. We represent him, we reveal him to the world. We're we're the ones through whom his message comes. We gotta figure this out. And the people's response is one of repentance. Verse 12, we will give it back, they said, and we we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. So they're committed to changing, but just in case they back up on their promises, Nehemiah tells us this. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath. He summons them as witnesses to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of their house and possession anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a person be shaken out and emptied. He basically says, okay, you've made a promise. Now, now, now let's let's just kind of put this in stone. And if you mess up, I hope God deals with you severely for what you're doing to his people. And look at their response into verse 13. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, which means let it be as you have said. And they praised the Lord and the people did as they had promised. So just in summary, the people of God are hurting one another. Now it would be easy given what's happening in our culture and our country right now, to try to draw the parallel, uh, to see a relationship between high prices, grain, um, taxation. That's not the aim of this passage. It's telling us what's happening for the people of God. The aim of this passage is to say that within the community, they were hurting one another. They were mistreating. Fellow Jews were mistreating fellow Jews. And Nehemiah says, this is not what God intends. We are to be a light we are to be a witness. We are to reveal the very best of who God is. We are to lift our eyes above our self-interest to the interest of others, to live humbly following him, God first, others second, ourselves third. And what happens? The people repent and they change. And what could have happened, a wall project being stopped, God's impact in that generation's ceasing, actually gets corrected and we see just a chapter later in Nehemiah 6 that the wall was built in just 52 days. A wall and gates around an entire city built in just over seven weeks because people chose to unite around what God had called them to and to love each other well. When I look at this example of Nehemiah, it's hard not to see commonality between that and the letter from the man in prison when he says to put aside your selfishness and personal agendas, when he says to lift your head and to put the interest of your neighbor above your own. That sounds a lot like what Nehemiah did. And even more, it's hard for me not to see and to hear the words of Jesus there. What does it look like? Love one another as I have loved you. Everyone will know that you are my disciples by how you love each other. Like, like let's, let's love each other as Jesus loved us. He's the example. And the reason why the example of Nehemiah and what happens among the people feels so familiar to the words of Jesus and the words of the prisoner is because it's the united message of God from the beginning of his word to the end. The word of that prisoner, by the way, are the words of the Apostle Paul. Not just a random person from several years ago, but the words of one of God's most faithful followers. The words I read you at the beginning were from a translation called The Voice, but here's what it says in the NIV. Paul writes to the Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So the very thing we say would probably be the remedy for the dysfunction in our world, was championed by Paul. Modeled and championed by Jesus. Look what Paul goes on to say in verse five. And your relationships with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And he gives us the example of Jesus who did not seek his own self-interest but laid aside his self-interest, his advantages of deity, be made in a human, be susceptible to death, death on a cross so we could be lifted high and that we could have new life. There's dysfunction in our world. And God has called the church, his people, who call themselves by his name Christians, to be the ones who model what a true community of healthy and whole relationships look like. To go into the world and help others experience that same wholeness. Though as we love one another, as Jesus himself loved us, that we shine that example for the world and we create something that's so compelling that people want to be a part of it. If you think about the church in Acts in the early days of of this movement of Jesus followers, there's a reason why more and more are added to their number because how they live and how they care for each other is so compelling. Yet if we're just honest for a moment... What is the church so often known for in America today? Are we known for our love? Are we known for putting our interests below another and lifting theirs above our own? Or are we known for trying to get ours? Are we known for the division within our own ranks? And how does that affect the hope that we are purveyors of? Church, we need a wake-up call. We need to be people who are willing to move above our self-interest and our preferences to put God first, the interests of others second, and look to ourselves last. And as we put him first and others second and ourselves last, guess what happens? We don't fight about silly stuff anymore. We don't get upset that something's not our way or or someone didn't do something the way I like it. But together, we come together on what matters most and we reveal this message of hope to a world that brings light into dark places. In short, we're called to treat each other like family. I have to be honest. I'm I'm a little jaded, probably a little rebellious against using terms like brother and sister in church. Some of you who know me know that. I grew up in a church tradition that I felt was a little fake or inauthentic um, where people would stand up and they'd call my, my dad, Brother Kerry, and My dad was named after Carrie Grant. And instead of just calling my dad Kerry, they would say, well, Brother Carrie's gonna do this. And then I hear them talk about my mom and say, Sister Kathy's gonna do that. And I'm like, my mom's not a nun? Like, I mean, they would, they would use that or they'd stand from a platform and they'd say, now, brothers and sisters. And I was always like, what are we doing? At the same time, I never really got treated like I was part of a family. And it dawned on me, because at home, I didn't talk to my siblings that way. I didn't say, hey, brother, Carrie, my my brother's named after my dad. Hey, brother, Scott, you wanna go get ice cream? I said, hey, Carrie, hey, Scott, you wanna go get ice cream? But how we treated each other was like family. And I never stood up at a family dinner and said, now, brothers and sisters, will you pass the mashed potatoes? No, I just said, hey, Scott, we passed the mashed potatoes. Hey, Becca, we passed the mashed potatoes. But we treated each other like family. What would happen if the church today in America was characterized by people loving each other like family? Some of you have tasted it. I've tasted it. Some of the people closest to us in our life are even closer than my biological family, and they're followers of Jesus who have loved me and accepted me. And cared for me like Jesus. And if we all can live like that, the world will want to know what we have and who we know. I don't know if you've seen these. Um, I've seen them at Hobby Lobby, I've seen them on Etsy, on Amazon, but these kind of popular signs that say, um, family is, we're in this house, and it lists several things. I think I have one for you to see on the screen. Um, This is one of my favorites that I found. It says, in this house, we do real, we do mistakes, we say I'm sorry, we give second chances, we have fun, we share laughter, we give hugs, we believe in God, we forgive, we are grateful, we do family, we do love. Anybody seen signs like this? Yeah, I love it. I'm like, what 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 an incredible thing to aim for as a family. And we know that if you look at that list, if you even think about your own family, where those things are missing, Chances are uh, that's where you experience some dysfunction and chances are that's where someone's self-interests have risen above the interests of others. But I can't help but look at this and think, what if we just change the first words to in this church or in the church? At Lebanon Christian Church, we do real. We do mistakes. We say I'm sorry. We give second chances. We have fun, we share laughter, we give hugs, we believe in God, we forgive, we are grateful, we do family, we do love. It'd be incredible if that described not just us, but the community of faith across our country and across our world. But here's what needs to happen to get there. I think there needs to be a spirit of repentance like Nehemiah was calling for. There are some in this room and probably all of us to some degree who just need to be honest. There are many places where we've put our interests and our preferences and our wants and our agendas above others. And we need to go to people, we need to seek them out and we need to say, I'm sorry, this is not about me. This is all about him and I wanna love you like Christ has loved you. There probably needs to be some apologies, not just in our church but in every church that we can unite around what matters most? Will we together love each other like family? A second thing that probably needs to happen is that if you're not yet a part of that family, I'd, I want you to see that God wants you in his family. I love the picture of adoption in scripture. We are called children of God. He's adopted us as children. Here's one of the most powerful things about adoption is that when someone adopts a child, there is no other way but to see that they want that child. Listen, I love my boys and I wanted my boys, um, but I didn't really have a whole lot of part in Audrey getting pregnant. Well, I did have a part in it, but it wasn't like it was a, a, huge, a huge sacrifice. Um, that'll start rumors, but it wasn't like it was a huge sacrifice. And to be completely honest, I, mean, I think we've shared this story with our boys. Like when we first learned that Audrey was going to be having a baby and for those of you that have struggled with fertility issues, you will not understand this and you'll see how hard my heart was at one point in our lives. Like I weeped. I was like, I'm not ready to be a dad. I didn't see the blessing that it was. Now, obviously once he was born, our lives changed and uh, I wouldn't wanna give up either of my boys for anything. Um, but the stories of people I know who have adopted children They never wrestled with that. That kid knows my mom, my dad, they wanted me. I think it's powerful that that's the picture that's used in scripture of God. We are adopted. He wants you. The God who made you wants you to experience him and the fullness of his life, the power of his son and, and what the forgiveness means that he offers to you. He wants you to experience that. And he makes that offer free and open, available to all of us if we will come to him, believe in him, turn from our sin and our brokenness and follow him. Follow him not just in baptism, to be washed clean, but to follow him in new life. And if you want that type of family, we'd love to help you find it. You can have a discussion with me or one of our elders at the front of the room. You can email us, connect at lebanonchristian.org. You can fill out a connection card. You can scan a QR code in our building. We want you to meet the God who loves you and who gives us the best way forward, a way full of life that's not characterized by selfish ambition or vain conceit, but a life characterized by the life of Jesus, putting others' interests above our own. We'd invite you to that. Let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for your word. I thank you for the witness, the consistent witness of it from beginning to end and how we even find ourselves in the ancient story of Israel returning from exile. And God, I pray that we would grow to be people for followers of you who love each other well and commit to treating others as you have treated us. And that by that, the world will know that we're yours and that you have a better way. And God, I pray for those who have run from you who have yet to turn to you, that you would help them to see that you want them and you offer them life in your family. It's in your name we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.